Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Ways of Working podcast. I am your host Adam Thackeray. I want to thank you again for listening in. We would greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you haven't tuned into our previous episodes, highly encourage you uh, going back to have a listen. Um, but without further ado, let's get started. So today we are joined by another very special guest. His name is Steve Pereira. So Steve is obsessed with making tech human and helping software delivery teams level up. So he's the founder of the company Visible, which is boosting team performance through value stream mapping. Uh, Previously, he's been the founding CTO of Statflow and is a lifetime workflow automator. He also leads the 6,000 plus member Toronto DevOps community with a regular meeting, events, and an annual conference, which I've also attended and where the idea for this original podcast came about between the two of us. Uh, So ever since he's been an infant, he's been taking things apart and reimagining how they fit back together. He had the wonderful fortune of being the child of a technical leader and a teacher and a family of six kids. That is a big family. He once moved into his closet for a week because it would keep his room clean, bed made without touching it. That's efficiency. He's become a bit more practical now and less idealistic over the years. However, he is no less obsessed with simplicity and optimization. He was always encouraged to be curious and resourceful and to speak up, experiment, and think big. And that's always how he's lived and how he's worked. I'd say those are some pretty great things to have in this day and age. So he loves to talk about DevOps, digital, cloud, delivery, you know, all these uh, wrapped in transformation. He also loves to talk about software delivery and value stream uh, automation. So he spends his warm months in Toronto and cold months in Mexico and other sandal friendly places. That sounds like a good deal, Um, especially even more apparent now with a distributed workforce. So we'll see if he has some good things to say about that. And he also provides the visible value delivery program workshops, remote coaching and tools to enterprise teams through his visible.is website. So Steve is involved with a lot. He is very active in the communities. I was very excited when we initially talked about this podcast. We had been wanting to do it for quite some time. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you Steve Pereira. Um, Obviously, we started this conversation, you know, welcome. And, you know, this whole conversation started out of uh, an article that was shared on LinkedIn that was provided by McKinsey. And that sparked up some conversation where you had jumped in and started to participate as well as another colleague, Julie Ingham, who I know. And that was all around. Um, you know, you commented about the demise of transformations and that there is a significant disconnect. And I think that's one of the areas where I want to start with. And then we had Julie jump in and then, you know, I, I had started to write a response and a summary and it turned out to be too many characters long. And you're saying we, we should do a podcast and we've been, what, a year, a year or more in the making of this. And since your last DevOps event uh, that you held, I said, you know, I really want to do a podcast with you. And you said, Sure. And then last year at the Agile conference, we're like, we need to do the podcast. And it's like, yes. And obviously okay. both of us as, as very busy individuals, that, that hasn't happened. So I'm very happy that, you know, got to have you on the, on the podcast today. So, so let's start with that. You know, the, the whole notion of being this, this disconnect between culture, value, and capability. You know, go into that, dig into that a little bit more and tell me why you feel there's such a disconnect right now. Yeah, I think that, you know, this is a common problem that people jump into or fall into when they start looking at transformation, they start looking at change. Uh, and I think it's, you know, a misunderstanding about terms, really, at the, at the very core of it. Because, you know, as groups and organizations, if we're not talking about the same thing, if we're not using the same vocabulary, the odds of us being on the same page are very slim. Right. We have a lot of trouble agreeing and aligning when we have different definitions, when we have different understandings of our environment, of our uh, mission, of our values. And I think in, in most organizations, you know, we have the values that live somewhere, probably in a knowledge base or maybe on the wall yeah. somewhere. Yeah. But how often are we coming back to them yeah. and coming back to them in a way that, you know, this town hall is begun by restating our values. This meeting is begun by restating our values. We're starting today or every day of the week yeah. by restating the values. And I think that, that that drilling is really important because you've got to sort of form those neural pathways where 
you know, you hear this thing and it makes you think of something else. Right. And the more that when you hear one thing and you think something else, yeah. um, and that becomes the way that everyone in the organization thinks until you intentionally think otherwise, or you're introducing diversity um, or, or sparking diversity intentionally, uh, then, then you're forming this strong foundation, right? So mm-hmm. once everybody is using the same terminology, then, then all of a sudden we can decide, okay, well, how do we actually put these values in practice? And I think right. that, that that's a big missing piece is that, you know, the values live and they should live in our subconscious to an extent, but they yeah. need to live in our, our conscious, you know, in, in our intentions and our activities. And I think that the, the thing that has really dramatically influenced my understanding of culture um, is uh, I think it was Ben Horowitzer, one of the, one of the Silicon Valley VC guys yeah. came out with a book about culture, yeah. basically stating that culture is what you do, right? Culture yeah. is what you're doing on a regular basis. Yeah. That is the thing that I think has been missing from, uh, agile transformation, DevOps transformation for years and years and years. It's like people think of culture in this nebulous gray cloud thing where it's, it's philosophical like philosophical type. Oh, it's in this magical land, but there's no action. Yeah. And it's not, you know, not connected to reality, but really, yeah. you yeah. know, it's, it really is like, what are you, what are your habits? You yeah. know, what happens when, when you hit a situation, when people disagree in a meeting, what happens? Yeah. Right? And, and, in a lot of cases, we don't know what happens, right? Something different happens every time and depending on who, Who's who says what and what their role is. And, and why are leaders, so you, you and I both know that this all starts with leaders and you know that it's this whole like bringing these missions forward and you know, it's getting people to actually, you know, do the work and get, you know, the actions in place. Why, why do you think leadership, you know, I don't want to say falls short, but is, is greatly challenged in this regard because as much as you know, we, we build communities of practice and they, they are grown organically and you know, they, they do develop you know, from an enterprise perspective, they never really take, you know, they, they never really get the growth trajectory unless there is leadership actually driving that and supporting it in some capacity or another. And so why do you think leadership is so challenged with being able to, you know, to do this? Because that, that very much challenges the, the ability to actually accelerate anything else as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it, it's extremely challenging. And part of the reason why it's so challenging is that, you know, we have the way that we've always done things, and that's an extremely powerful force, right? The way that we've uh, solved problems in the past, the way that we think about things is is not based on the future. It's based on our experience, right? And, and our environment. And the other thing is that, you know, as as leaders, we have to walk the walk, right? We have to represent we, you have to be the change that you want to see in the world, right? So yeah. that's that's very challenging, especially in, in cases where you know that's going to uh, put your reputation on the line. In some cases, where you you've got to say, I know we don't have all the data for this, but this is what I really believe that we should do. Right. Yeah, um, you know, I, I see this working in other places, and I think we should do it. Uh, and fighting those battles where you know you might not have everything that you would like to, to go to war with. Yeah. Um, but you've got to, you've got to go to war with the, with the army that you have. Right. And so that is, is in case of like data, it's in case of capabilities to bring you back to the, the first uh, question that you had. Like, yeah. I think that the, the capabilities aspect, that's where we see a huge gap in the transformation space is that, how many people have actually gone through this uh, to any degree of success, right? We see 90% of transformation efforts not meeting their goals. And so how many people have actually uh, had any kind of success that we can lean on and replicate and count on and say, yeah, you know, we're going to base this on uh, the success that we've had in, in this area. A lot of people are just, you know, fumbling around in the dark and they, they try and base their efforts on some other success story, right? You know, there was an insurance company. We're an insurance company. We've seen an insurance company do this. Uh, it, we know it's possible, but that doesn't necessarily give you a lot of actionable insight on like, what should you do next? Yeah. You know, how should you prioritize these things? How should you fill these capability gaps? 
Do you think the tolerance of, uh, of risk now might be heightened given, you know, COVID is here, we all know that. It's, and, you know, you hear that COVID has, you know, is going to really push the, the transformation to people to be more digital. You're seeing it, you know, actually happening. Do you think that the risk tolerance of executives, or at least their eyes are going to open up a little bit more that will say, you know, we had these roadmaps, we had these ideas, but we actually are going to actually do it and put the, you know, put action in play, if you will, to, to get things rolling. I, I think so. You know, I, one of the really critical pieces of like the Cotter change model, for instance, is the, the aspect of urgency, right? And, and urgency has never been more present. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've literally dropped into a situation of like overnight, all of a sudden nobody can come into the office, you know, and yeah. that was something that people could have seen coming or not, but the, the runway to that was it, from one perspective, it was decades. You know, yeah. we all knew this was coming. That's we knew this was coming in the sixties with like yeah. the Jetsons, right? It's like, <laughs> we are going to be working from home. We're going to be telecommuting. Like yeah. we yeah. knew it was going to happen. And yet, um, we knew that that wasn't the most comfortable or ideal situation based on the system that we've built, right? So right. how do you bet on the future when the future is different, uncomfortable, uh, and not ideal? Uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of incentive to kind of jump into that by your own uh, sort of timing. Yeah. Uh, but being pushed, now all of a sudden you have this support and this sort of tailwind that's saying, if you do this, not, not only do you have to do something, right. but if you do this, everyone else is doing it. So the relative risk is lower. You know, right. you can look like you have the excuse of looking sort of foolish while you stumble around because everyone is stumbling around to a degree. Yeah. And so I think that the risk in terms of getting it wrong is, is lower because it's kind of forgivable to stumble at this point. Um, and, and the risk of taking the leap and jumping in um, head first is also lower because now, you know, we're beyond the writing on the wall, right? It's, uh, it's everywhere. And so there's this gap that exists where we, you know, we, in the discussion, we noted about roadmaps and strategies and that, you know, these are good perspectives at point in time, but there is this gap between roadmap execution or even a, even a, a plan to execute and get it, actually get into it and, and then actually being able to deliver and, and staying invested in that delivery, learning how to pivot, learning to have that flexibility. You know, what, what are some ideas or, you know, immediate tactics that executives can look at because everyone is writing about this right now, right? It's, it's all about business resumption. It's all about how to get back, looking at your priorities, you know, kind of blah, blah, blah. But when you get, when you actually get down to it, there needs to be action and there needs to be reasonable, strong individuals. So, you know, what are some ideas that we can give the group, you know, the audience to, to help them really get off on the right foot or actually start to, to move on things, not just talk more about it? Yeah, well, I think actually you've touched on two major ones that I really love uh, earlier in the podcast with the, the Flow podcast and the Communities of Practice podcast. Yeah. I think uh, I would recommend, you know, anyone listening to this, if you haven't heard those, go back, listen to them, because that is uh, part of the foundation that I build a lot of my work on. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we're, uh, if we're looking at trying to get ourselves into the best position as we go back to uh, some, some form of predictability, some, some form of forward progress rather than reacting, um, looking at the value stream is incredibly powerful and necessary, right? Uh, how we do business has changed. It should change. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, really the, the value stream will change and how you leverage specific activities inside of the value stream, how you look at uh, ca how capabilities factor into the value stream, tooling that you're using, um, the necessity of having everybody in a room to make a decision. Yeah. All of these things need to be reevaluated. So yeah. uh, we need to map the value stream and say, okay, what are these, what are the things that we assumed were necessary before and are no longer necessary? And what are the things that we were doing before that uh, may be risky as we try to uh, scale up, uh, become more um, distributed, 
become more flexible to people who really don't want to come back into the office? Like, how do you accommodate yeah. them? You know, yeah. um, I don't want how to do you accommodate? <laughs> Sorry? I don't want to communicate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. How many people? You know, I think that, uh, I think a stat that I read was 54% want to go back into the office. Yeah. Um, and, and so that is a, that's a huge divide. Yeah. And I think it's a big change from before. And I actually think that that 54% will go down um, because we've all just been getting more and more used to this telecommuting and uh, online collaboration scenario. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming more comfortable. And yeah. as you become more comfortable, it, it becomes more of an option. But to go, um, and, and so I would say that looking at the value stream, absolutely essential. There, there's no situation where that doesn't benefit you even on a quarterly basis to revisit the value stream. Yeah, I um, and, and the other piece, I think communities of practice are incredibly valuable because what happens in this scenario is you have a changed environment, you have uh, a changed flow of your business, you, you want to be able to identify the individuals and the leaders who are comfortable and uh, excessively outsized value yeah. in those areas and then build uh, supports around them, build yeah. progress momentum around them because those are the people who are going to take you into the next phase of business in this adapted environment in the strongest position. Yeah. And if you don't support them, they're going to go to other organizations where you know, this is the last straw, you know, this, we had every opportunity to change. Yeah. We had the, the, the momentum, we had the urgency and still nothing happened. That's it. I'm out. Yeah. So I think doubling yeah. down on those people, those leaders who are, you know, this is the chance where you get to pivot towards them and empower them. And if you don't take advantage of that, I think that's a big risk. Uh, the other thing that I like for kind of reskilling and addressing capability gaps is, Uh, One capability mapping, like just looking at the capabilities inside of a team, what do you have? What do you need? What are the levels of skill in those areas? Um, And and layering that on top of the value stream so that your capabilities are actually supporting the value stream instead of what you think you should be doing Um, and and setting up dojos or or some training center inside the organization to, to augment those capabilities, to grow them internally Mm -hmm. or to, uh, to be able to onboard people to new ways of working. The, so, so for those who might not be familiar with value stream mapping, it, it, you know, uh, it is an exercise that, you know, at a high level, you know, you, you go into an organization and you want to understand from a product standpoint, you know, where are we today? You know, you go into an organization, most, most can't tell you, you can't even get 15 people in a room to articulate, you know, how is this product delivered to market from, you know, the business, or if you're in a product-based organization, even now, product management, development, you know, testing, QA, ops, end-to-end, most organizations can't tell you. There are a few, and that's why value stream mapping is so important. So, yeah, I agree, and, and that, that understand where we are today to understand where you want to get to in the future, and I thought, you know, what you brought up about the whole reviewing it, you know, every so often, every quarter, or whatever that timely period is, to make sure that you're on the trajectory you need to be. There's never really a, a future state, as we've said. It's it, it's iterative, and you're just going to continuously evolve based on that value stream. And you're going to need to update, you know, the upskilling and all those skill sets and, and the mastery of the individuals because you can only be high performing if it's mapping to the products you're trying to get to market because you're serving customers, and in the end, it's a business that wants to make money. And if you want to do that, then you need to understand the business, which is why value stream mapping is so important. Uh, I, I liked how you mentioned dojos. Obviously, I, I'm big on lifelong learning and, and growing that. And I think that's a, a huge piece to you know being able to actually truly grow the organization. And because the talent war, I, I don't think people really appreciate. I don't think really people truly appreciate until you work on a high performing team and then you don't the difference you get. And it, it's it's very easy to see that once you have been a part of it. Uh, I have been fortunate to be a part of many high performing teams and then not so much. And, you know, and it presents opportunity. It's not necessarily a negative. It's only a negative when it's to your point where they don't want to enable and empower that group to grow and mature and progress if they just want to keep it the same way and keep that level of mediocrity, if you will. Um, then, then there's no desire. Then, yeah, everyone's going to exit. Any high performer is going to be like, I can move on to the, the next ship where I actually get to do stuff and, and really progress things. 
So, so with that, like you mentioned community of practice that we had this discussion around the bimodal and, you know, Gartner and others for years have written about this and the desire to it. You noted that, you know, there's a high risk with this and, and we discussed around, you know, it is a lot, it's an investment and it may or may not be the right case, but, but walk us through a little bit about, you know, your, your uh, perspective on bimodal. What do you think, what do you think about it? Um, if it's worth the risk and, and in what sense may, might it be in? So for those bimodal is basically having two different group, two different groups, one doing business as usual, one doing the, the new innovative investment. It's not meant to be a rogue or ninja IT organization, um, but in some cases I think that is. And so uh, let, let's get into that a little bit to understand, you know, your perspective on bimodal. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a great uh, subject area and it's open to a lot of different opinions. Uh, I think it really operates very differently in, in different organizations, but uh, at the core, what I see uh, is that it, it's based in a sound practice. You know, if we are uh, trying to adopt something new, if we look at our personal lives, right? If I'm trying to uh, do 30 push-ups a day, you know, I don't stop showering every morning. I don't stop eating breakfast. I don't stop uh, you know, getting my coffee, I'm trying to layer a new capability, a new practice, a new habit on top of ordinary uh, status quo, right? Because if I were to disrupt everything in my life, the, the odds of me finishing that 30 push-ups a day just plummets to zero, right? If, I'm, if every day is chaos, if I'm layering on a new challenge, um, first of all, I'm going to drop the ball in my in my ordinary life. So, you know, if I'm trying to just randomly attack new problems by shifting my entire organization to focus on that new area, uh, I might get the best and fastest outcome in that new area, but everything existing that I was leveraging up to that point and trying to sustain is likely going to suffer immensely. Yeah. And it's going to be incredibly stressful. So I think maintaining some level of consistency, paying the bills, uh, leveraging your core competencies is very important. And then experimenting and making small bets in a new direction gives you kind of the best of both worlds. The challenge that I see in a lot of organizations who, and I think the pushback that you see from a lot of people who say that bimodal is not a real thing, uh, it's very, very valid in that what you can't sustain is two modes of operating over an extended period of time, right? You can't go all in in two directions. No. Uh, so I think that you've got to have a very pragmatic approach and sort of looking at how, how this exists in the context of a value stream is very important because you've got your day-to-day -day bread and butter value stream. You know, the value stream that pays the bills. Yeah. What you wanna be doing is feeding all these experimental bets of new ways of working and new capabilities into the value stream as early as possible, right? You either kill it or adopt it. Yeah. And I think that where we see a lot of failures is people trying to sustain, you know, we have the way that we make money and then we have these crazy people in the basement who are uh, noodling away at random things, hoping that they hit the jackpot at some point. And that, you know, there, there's a lot of conflict in that, right? There's two different types of personalities. There's people who are, you know, you get into like class systems where it's like, yeah, that's cool. Go play with your toys. Yeah. We make money here. You know, we're the ones driving the business. We're the reason why you have a job. Yeah. And then from the other perspective, it's like you guys are stuck in the past. You're not changing anything. You're going to, you're going to die out. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and we are the lifeblood of the business. We're the future of the business. Yeah. And you can't have that. You have to align everything to the same value stream and say, ultimately, all of this is about serving our customers. Right. These little bets are meant to push us ahead and make us, uh, make us an improved organization from a holistic perspective. And I think you've got to be taking those wins, taking those learnings from your, uh, let's say, progressive or aggressive experimental aspect of the business mm -hmm. and rolling them into the products, the, the, the core value stream as often as possible. And, and the, the product portfolio 
and you can't hesitate to kill off, you know, what's not working as well. You know, you've got to be kind of advancing and retiring at the same time. Uh, but yeah, I don't see uh, an opportunity where you can take the entire business bet it on the future without sacrificing what's working, yeah. which would be an incredible destruct, uh, destruction of value. So in, instead of a, like, unless you have a really remarkable opportunity or risk, that bet is, is very expensive and risky. But the small bets, the, you know, the small projects that, mm-hmm. you know, if they meet certain criteria, they get rolled in. I think a lot of large organizations, they make the mistake of having these centers of innovation and there's no plan, you know, there's no on-ramp nope. back to the highway, right? You know, so you've got these little tiny projects yeah. and no one ever expects them to succeed. No one ever has a plan for bringing them back into the, yeah. into the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see, you know, a lot of issues. We've seen a lot of stories of, okay. of these centers getting shut down. I don't want to name any names, but. No, uh, but it, it leads into my tons. next question because I was going to ask which centers around this, the, the people in the basement are the innovators that are in these hubs that have been erected by a variety of entities. And these are large, you know, multinational organizations that have built these. And there is no, as you said, there's no road back to the highway. They haven't looked at how do I actually integrate these capabilities into the product portfolio such that I can get it released to market. And, and that's a big problem because this is, goes back to our conversation around, they, they segregate the audiences and they don't look to gain an appreciation. Both sides of the house, the dinosaurs are those who are still running the operations and business as usual and, and the stuff that's making money, which is needed and will never go away. They don't have an appreciation because they think you know, of what the other side does and vice versa. And because those two, um, basically are, are stu- stubborn and egotistic individuals, they won't want to have a sit down and go through that. And so it's, it's a bit of a liaison slash a babysitting slash a, you know, relations effort to bring those two together. It, it, it's real. It's really almost like an arbitration, if you will, <laughs> to bring those. Yeah. together. And that's why you see it die off because eventually those who waited out, which are the dinosaurs, they're like, we've done this before. We'll wait it out again. And the innovators get tired. And as you said, they move on to an organization that wants to enable and empower and release those products to market. And so that's why you get, again, transformations that fail because of these sort of situations. They don't want to actually look at how to integrate it. There's not enough support from executives to actually push that through. And then it fizzles out. The quarter ends or the, that, you know, they're on to the next year of road mapping and strategy. And they're like, well, that didn't go well that quarter. So off with it and they don't want to continue the investment. And so I think that's a really important note because uh, there is a lot of power that can come from it. We've seen with organizations that do invest in innovation. And and again, this goes back to the executives um, and the leaders of the organization aligning people end to end. And we've seen success stories in manufacturing, in technology, you know, in other areas, in retail and other spaces that, and in banking, um, you know, the, always the, the, the example of Amazon and people don't realize that, you know, Amazon is a heavily regulated organization, um, more so than banks. And so, but yet they still seem to get stuff out the door very quickly. Obviously, some of their practices aside that, you know, people may or may not agree with. Um, but aside from that, they're able to deliver quickly. They have alignment and they, they're able to innovate and bring those products to market. And so, um, and even banking we've seen, we've seen BMW. So there, there's a lot that can do it. Um, and, and I think that's an important point. Um, and they invested, but to your, to your uh, point, they did take it back to not doing everything at once. There's no, there, there, there's no flip of the switch and everything magically changes, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, to, to kind of bring this back to the earlier conversation, the, where I see the, the successful formula for this bimodal uh, Mm -hmm. organization is, is in the alignment and the values, right. And, and in looking at the value stream. So, you know, you can have these two uh, very different parts of the organization, as long as they share the same values and as long as they have common communities of practice, that, that I think is a very important piece where you have, you know, you've got the IT organization uh, in the, keep the lights on uh, core business and you've got the IT organization in the, the, the new uh, progressive 
future facing customer facing maybe uh, experimental side bringing those people together on a regular basis helping them realize what they have in common and what they can learn from each other is incredibly powerful and and what we see in a lot of these failure cases is that those people never meet right they they never sit in the same room they might not even know that each other exists and so you know if you're not bridging those gaps the odds of bringing the products and the the practices together are so much lower uh, and, and it really does start with you know what are the we all have the same values right we're all working for the same company at the end of the day we have the same customer we have the same mission and uh, that doesn't get reinforced often enough in, in a lot of these organizations yeah I agree uh, 100% agree uh, remote work so you know you you spend time between Toronto and sunny destinations so you're quite familiar <laughs> with uh, with with I try remote. and so you know while we're accelerating all these you know the Again, business resumption is going to take place. There's going to be people going back to work. You mentioned there's a lot that won't be. Um, you know, obviously you've been working remote for a while, or, and it's not working remote as working from home. I think that's a, a distinction to, to make as well. Is that right? To your point of working in Toronto or, or Mexico or wherever, is that it, it's mobile working. It's enabling a, a workforce that can work wherever, whenever, however, and providing that capability both from a, a cultural, behavioral, and infrastructure perspective that, that supports that. And so, you know, like, what, what, what would you say to people, like, because you have, you know, bounced around and worked from a hammock to working from a formal, you know, office setting here in, here in, the, in the GTA in Toronto area, you know, what do you say to people for working remote and what are some ways that are, are not the typical, but they're, they're more like action and tactical ways they can look at um, becoming better at working from, in, a, in a more distributed manner? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the, the funny thing about remote work is that it really is nothing new. You know, we have been doing this uh, for ages and ages. And a lot of people don't realize that where this commonly happens is when there's uh, no choice, right? We have to shut down the office because we've got to clean all the carpets because there was some kind of, you know, there was flooding in the office or, you know, the 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 fire suppression system went off and so no one's allowed in the building for the next three days. Yeah. We've had situations like that for ages, right? And these intermittent things that happen in an organization, we kind of forget about them. But if we intentionally designed a system that could accommodate disruption at any scale, and now we're seeing the, you know, a form of extreme scale, I won't say that it's the most extreme, but a form of extreme scale of this challenge, intentionally designing business continuity around these possibilities is very valuable because not only does it allow you to become more resilient, uh, it allows you to really take advantage of advanced opportunities, right? So, you know, if you're in a situation where you don't need a lot or what you, you think is actually necessary to perform your business um, is much, much lower than a common practice, all of a sudden you have an advantage that you can leverage, right? Um, if you look at the most common example is, is a distributed workforce from a uh, talent pool perspective, right? If you can be hiring and uh, leveraging talent from all over the world, all of a sudden that impacts your uh, business availability, you know, you can be operating in all time zones all the time, continuously, you know, you can leverage uh, economies, you can leverage the fact that there's uh, a lot of great, educated, smart, capable people all over the world and trying to bring them into your office is an incredible challenge. It's very expensive, it's very costly from a lifestyle perspective, it's very yes. disruptive to everybody. Um, so the more we can look at where and how do we want to work? And that is decoupled from doing the work and the, the necessity of getting the work done. If we're no longer concerned about uh, where people work from and how they work, and we focus more on outcomes, then uh, our focus will kind of define a more optimal flexibility and, and uh, degree of performance because 
ultimately the outcome is the only thing that matters, right? I don't care if people work, if you want to work from midnight to 5 a.m. every day, mm-hmm. if you want to work two hours a day and you get your work done and you're delivering value, mm-hmm. uh, it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, right? Uh, as long as you are a productive and valuable member of your team, I think, you know, we can see is that we have individuals who, you know, they want to work 11 a.m. to uh, 7 p.m. and the team wants to meet at 9 a.m. every morning. That is a challenge. You know, you have to kind of navigate these situations such that the team is unified and the team right. is aligned. Yeah. But as far as the organization is concerned, as long as the outcomes are positive, then it shouldn't really matter that much. Now, outcomes is an interesting one because uh, now, like with, with organizations, they typically, you know, if you had mentioned about the past, they follow a very traditional way of working and a very traditional way of operating because that's a behemoth and what they've been used to. Um, and the outcome is typically either make money or save money, but they relate that in, in very, you know, finite terms. And they don't necessarily look at outcomes as, you know, driving greater performance or driving greater customer experience, which will then inevitably make them more money. And if they're driving efficiencies as an outcome, it's going to reduce their total cost of operating, which in the, you know, ends up saving money. So how do you, how can they look, you know, in organizations are looking at liquidity right now and what's their cash flow and all that sort of stuff. So resources are, you know, quote unquote constrained, but they also need to actually accelerate this investment. So when this next bump hits or there's even, you know, a continue, if we continue in this state for any period of time, uh, they're going to be, you know, essentially bleeding money. And so in order to avoid that, what are some ways that they can look at focusing those outcomes towards those practices versus um, just cash and how can they map it back? Like, do you have some thoughts around, because the challenge they always get is how do I map my ROI when you say I want to be a high performing team, you know, how do I map that? Right. And how do I map that? Or how do I map my value stream back to me making more, more money quarter over quarter? Cause I already make, you know, whatever, a billion dollars quarter over quarter, uh, you know, how is this going to help me in that case? Yeah, that's a great question. I think ROI is one of the most fascinating aspects of any kind of measurement that we can do in a business. Uh, it's kind of the, the holy grail, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what we've seen in the past and, and over the course of, let's say, the 20th century are... ROI was based on dialing in very predictable outcomes uh, such that, you know, we know that the market for a midsize sedan uh, will support X if we have these features, right? And, and people will just buy it as long as it's not a complete disaster. So we can make all of this upfront investment, build an assembly line, buy all these materials, uh, create a value chain that supports a very predictable or somewhat predictable outcome. Um, And now what we're in a, in a situation of software driven society, what happens is, you know, we've kind of lost uh, a degree of predictability because what one customer will pay for uh, single sign on or enhanced security features, enhanced privacy, is very different from another customer. It's very, you know, we have these diversities of uh, cohorts and demographics. Yeah. Uh, differences in, in all these levers and dials that we can tune to basically create products that have any kind of capability or attribute. Um, and so it becomes very challenging. It does definitely help to go back to the value stream and say, we don't really know what the value we can get out of this is. Basically, let's ask for as much money as we can get, right? We can look at competition. We can look at uh, what else is out there in the market. We can try and do the math from a sales perspective. But if we look at the value stream um, and we look at what does it actually cost to deliver it, uh, regardless of what we can get out of it, right? That's that's where I think the the magic is, is decide on pricing and, and dictate your pricing however you like, right? The market will, will influence that. You have a lot of control over what it costs you. And so you can move those dials. You know, you can't really like influence demand in the market without a lot of marketing and, and an effort on that side. But 
what you can do is manage your costs. And I think in this situation, uh, we have a lot of organizations who are trying to minimize cost, optimize for scale, get the most out of what they have, get more for less. And so by looking at the value stream and saying, okay, we know the salary of the individuals involved in the value stream. We know how much time they're spending on their specific activities. If we're mapping the delay and the handoffs and all the waste in a value stream, um, we can trim that down. And typically what happens with my clients is that just by mapping the current state, we get 20% right away. Mm -hmm. So just by looking at it, everyone can say, well, yeah, if we didn't, if we just did this slightly differently, we could either eliminate it or we could chop it down by a huge percentage. And that just comes from looking at the big picture, right? And, And we don't often do that. And I think that that really helps us map all of this cost to our activities. And then it helps us move those dials and levers to get those, those costs as reasonable as possible without constricting the creative aspects of, of software development, without um, really dictating a, a strict manufacturing yeah. aspect of, of doing business. Because what we want from software is maximizing creativity, minimizing toil and busy work, right? And a lot of people, they they come to something like value stream mapping and they're like, isn't this just going to make us robots? You know, Mm -hmm. we're just going to be manufacturing software. And that's really not what it's about. (laughs) It's about getting rid of the parts that nobody wants to do, right? Automate the things that nobody wants to do or they're doing robotically already. Yeah. And by automating that stuff, we can spend more time on the creative aspects. We can spend more time hanging out instead of sitting in meetings, trying to make a decision that we've made 50 times before. We just don't realize that we always make the same decision given these inputs and this, this scenario. Yeah. Or somebody has left the organization and they no longer remember how to do it. So you have to, you literally go through a VSM every time, a value stream mapping time because say, you or I have left as consultants or the individual that was there five years ago when it was last done is no longer there. So you have to repeat this exercise, which goes back to your point of toil. And I think that's important because you hear a lot of times executives saying, Oh, value stream mapping is this, you know, thing consult management consultants like to come in and, and just do as an, as a, as a facilitator, you know, workshop piece. And, and I I don't see the value of it because it seems to take so long and we've got to spend so much time doing it. And I think it's really important. What you said is that, if you understand where, where you are and how you operate, you don't have to do it every single time afterwards and everyone is aware of the situation, which gets back to being able to have simple solutions, like you said, that 20%, it gets you to have that system level perspective, which I agree, most people do not do. And that's a big gap as well as you, you need more system thinkers in organizations, just as you need practitioners and doers and, and individuals in varying capacities you know, some may call it generalist, but it, it is really more of a system thinking and looking at all the interrelated components and how it works and having that big level picture of how things operate. I find most don't take that or, or if they do, they don't want to really put forth that effort to, to really evangelize that, that perspective because they don't think anybody wants to see it. Everyone's too caught up in their, their day-to-day activity. So I, I do think that's, yeah. that's really important. Yeah, I think that the, you know, the, the diversity of perspective is very important. And what happens too often is that we have people with a specific perspective who easily relate to other people with the same perspective. And then the organization just sort of organically becomes this single perspective uh, organization, right? Because it's like, yeah, when I talk to uh, Jill, she just gets me because we're talking about the same thing. We have the yeah. same kind of thought process. And so Jill gets promoted. Everyone else sees that Jill gets promoted and people who think in a specific way are rewarded. And so everyone's going to start thinking in the same way. And then you have these organizations where diversity of thought is kind of dampened and, and restricted. Yeah. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a blockbuster situation. And, and so that I think that introducing that diversity perspective in um, an amazing way is mapping a value stream. But um, the other thing that I think I challenge in organizations is the idea that this costs a lot or it takes a lot of time. And I think that that is a mistake that's often made 
but it's absolutely not, not necessary. I've seen people do value stream mapping in, in banks and they end up with a 2000 step value stream. It took four days to create yeah. and nobody ever wants to look at it again. Nobody wants to talk about that experience. It's like PTSD <laughs> because they approached it the wrong way. And you know, I think that at the core, something like value stream mapping is a lean practice. So yeah. you, you have to execute it in a lean, uh, a lean way. Yeah. And so when I do value stream mapping, it's like two hours is the minimum investment, but you often don't need to go beyond two hours. Right. And if we need to, we can dig further into the details, but that's yeah. entirely optional. So I'm always aiming to, to uh, get the most for the least investment. And there's nothing that stops us from going back and saying, let's, let's now map an extra layer of detail on this, but you're not tying up all these people in the room, you know, depleting the oxygen level, trying to figure out, you know, every possible detail when you're going to get massive ROI just by figuring out what's the biggest bottleneck, right? If we figure out the biggest bottleneck, let's come back later and find the next biggest bottleneck. But as long as you leave that session, as long as you, that value stream is highlighting one incredible improvement opportunity you have paid for that exercise tenfold maybe a hundredfold yeah that's amazing and i like how you put the guide rails around that because i think it gives again back to perspective it gives people an appreciation of it doesn't have to be this laborious affair you can dig as deep down the rabbit hole as you uh, want or need to go based on again the problems at hand or the outcomes you're trying to get to and so i think that's great um Steve, uh, we're, we're coming to a, to an end here close. Uh, what, what are some final thoughts you have on as the, you know, cause it's a hot topic now as we move into business resumption and as we look, what are, what are, you know, kind of three things that you would give the, the listeners to say, keep these in mind as you start to mobilize and operationalize, um, your activities coming out of this, um, so that people can be successful. Uh, we already already are in the age of software. You know, Mark Andreessen wrote about this years ago that it's eating the world. It's now mainstream. So, so what are, you know, some of your final thoughts around that, um, uh, that acceleration piece? I, th- I think that, you know, what's really crucially important for organizations and teams coming back to normal is to take this opportunity as sort of like a fresh start. You know, th- we can, to a large degree, wipe the slate clean on a lot of the communication alignment failures that we've had and use this as a chance to bring everybody back on the same page and do a really fantastic job of saying that was terrible and that was traumatic and that was something that we hope never happens again Mm -hmm. um but it has uh it has brought me a new appreciation for uh, being together, uh, for working together, for being aligned as a team and as an organization under a mission, under values that we all share, and being very clear about what the what kind of gratitude we can have for ordinary work. You know, like that's that's something that like we might have all been dreading before this. <laughs> and now like coming back into the office will be this miraculous change if, if we've been kind of deprived of that. Um, and it's something that we, we might not have valued very much. And now, you know, we have a chance to sort of say, you know, you know, what's great about this and you know, what's great about um, the opportunity to work together or yeah the opportunity to now be remote, you know, that's another opportunity that's, yeah. that's uh, we're, we're facing. And so being grateful about that and, and communicating that gratitude, I think is very important. Um, looking at um, the current state, whether that's a, that's a hybrid remote or fully co-located again mm-hmm. um, with, with some minor tweaks, uh, looking at the current state as, you know, we really didn't have a lot of control over how we got here. And that is true of any current state, right? There's a lot of things that go into where we are right now. um, And we can't really dwell on the fact that all of this happened and we are here now, but now that we are where we are, let's take stock of where we are. Let's, let's really intentionally design a direction 
from our current state that makes us a stronger, better, faster, happier organization. Yeah. And, uh, and really put in some time in doing that the right way. Because I think that as organizations, we, we do a lot of things organically, right? It just happens. And that lack of intention uh, really hurts us in the long run, right? It can, it can manifest itself in many, many different ways that drive a bunch of negative outcomes. Yeah. And being more intentional about how we view change and how we view uh, evolution uh, and, and new ways of working, new ways of working together, new, new problems to solve, that intentionality is incredibly valuable. And so being able to step back and see things as more of a system, uh, see how all of the pieces come together, the diversity of thought, the, the diversity of capabilities, uh, is, is really, I think, going to put organizations on a much stronger foundation for whatever comes next. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining myself and, and the, the listeners today. Really appreciate the time. Obviously, we've been a long time coming to do this. So, so thanks again. Uh, where can people find you? Like, what's, what's the best way if people want to get in touch with you to talk more about VSM or some of your great services? Obviously, you have, you know, the DevOps conference uh, as well. So there's a lot of things that you have, you know, in motion, if you will, or that you're constantly, you know, building out those communities and building out, you know, the knowledge sharing. Uh, where, where can people <clears throat> best find you yeah so um can throw a link to uh, my last name might be hard to hard to spell depending on where you're from but uh steveferreira.ca is a personal site um visible.is that is uh icelandic uh yeah. domain <laughs> visible.is is my website okay um i've got a i've got a, a blog there with with some writing on getting started with value stream mapping and, and what, what it all is about. Okay. Um, and uh, then devopsto.com is the, is the community site. And I'm working on a few other things that I'll keep you, uh, I'll keep you looped into and, and hopefully good. we can share with the listeners when they're, uh, when they're ready for the broader audience. Nice. But thank you very much for, for the opportunity. This was a great conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to, uh, happy to have it. Uh, so for those listening, we'll put all the, the links in the, in the show notes. So again, thank you very much, Steve, for coming and uh, listeners tune in for the next episode. So we're going to sign off now. Thanks very much, everyone.